There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. My later 20s, throughout my 30s, even up to kind of age 40, I suppose, I questioned deeply whether not having children was definitely the right path. And there were definitely points where we almost became convinced that we should just take the leap and just go for it. But something in me always brought me back to, it's not for you. This isn't the right path for you. And I'm so grateful that I have that really strong connection to myself, a very strong sense of myself and who I am, something that is deeply nurtured by the alone time that I'm able to have in my life. It meant that I've always been able to trust my intuition quite strongly. Hi, and welcome to Alonement, the podcast about time alone and why it matters. I'm Francesca Spector, host of this podcast and author of Alonement, a book based on this very show. I'm also a reformed extreme extrovert who, a few years ago, discovered the life-changing benefits of spending time alone. Each week, I interview someone I'm curious about to discover what solo time means to them. In every conversation, we celebrate the unique benefits of time spent alone, regardless of your age, life stage, or relationship status. Because when alone time isn't lonely, it's alonement. Right now, we are at a really fascinating time in history, where both in the UK, US, and across almost every developed nation, like Switzerland, Italy, Japan, and South Korea, adults are having children later in life or indeed not at all. While statistics vary, it's a recognised trend, and that trend is relevant to all of us, whether we have children now or in the future, or we don't. Author Ruby Warrington, my guest on this week's episode, has tackled that subject in her latest book, Women Without Kids, a timely non-fiction investigation into what it means to be, as it says on the tin, a woman without children today. It's a book enriched with expert insights from philosophers, anthropologists, social scientists, and other writers. This is naturally a topic that lends itself an alonement slant too. We all know that parenthood isn't exactly famed for its abundant alone time. But what about a life and relationship that takes place without it? Ruby, who is now in her mid-40s and has been with her husband, Simon, for over 20 years, shares the answers to that question and many more of mine, offering so many insightful perspectives into being child-free by choice. I hope you find it interesting. This season is brought to you by West Lab, the UK's number one trusted bath salts brand. 
Their best-selling Dead Sea bath salt range contains minerals that come from the famous waters themselves. Fun fact, it's actually a lake, not a sea, that's found in the lowest point of the earth and was the world's first spa, visited by Cleopatra herself. Dead Sea Salt is a skin hero containing a unique blend of magnesium, calcium and potassium, which is brilliant for protecting and repairing your skin barrier and managing conditions like eczema, psoriasis, acne and sensitive skin, together with soothing any aching muscles. I'm also kind of in love with magnesium for its mood balancing qualities. It's nice to think that your mind and body are being looked after while you're soaking there in the tub. West Lab Dead Sea Bath Salts are vegan, cruelty-free and suitable for the whole family, including babies aged three months and up. Use the code ALONEMENT15 for 15% off when you spend £10 or more. T's and C's in the show notes. I love the title of your podcast so much. And this is actually, I think, probably one of my favourite subjects. And for me, that word alone is very closely tied to the concept of sovereignty this sort of self-possessed quality, self-possessed literally, the word sovereign, to be sovereign means to be unownable. And perhaps in our kind of social media world, we could even say uninfluenceable, you know? And so for me, alone immediately brings this feeling of sovereignty. And I think that one of the reasons I'm feeling that very strongly today, literally, just before we started recording, I was just explaining how I've been traveling for the past month, over a month, 33 nights, 11 beds, seven cities. (laughs) And I've spent very little time alone. During that time, I did a lot of family visits. So I was staying in spare rooms, um, eating at other people's dinner tables. Um, I was, I hosted four book events. So I was in rooms with lots of people who'd come to hear about my book. Um, I was, um, meeting lots of friends. Um, I was being interviewed. So I was just in the company of others far more than I usually am. I am a loner by character and I've always been a loner. I've always really enjoyed and valued spending a lot of time alone. And it's very interesting to me to notice how my sense of self and my connection to myself became so diluted during this period of being in the company of others without ample time to kind of almost plug back into myself and to recharge. And it made me realize that my alone time is when I recharge and it's when I come back to myself, to my sovereignty. And it's so incredibly valuable and precious to me. And I, that's specific to me and my personality and my needs. And I know that other people feel that they are more themselves or they kind of come back to themselves in relationship with others. But for me, alone, being alone is a time to come back to myself and my sovereignty. It's interesting that actually, now you mention this, I've never actually thought about this, but because of the nature of how publicity works, quite often when I speak to, you know, authors or media personalities who are promoting something, I've heard this kind of thing before and I never really thought it is a commonality. Maybe I should be catching people out of their uh, publicity cycles, but also maybe not because I think that for some reason, it means that I end up catching people when they're most thinking about this, this stuff that, you know, that having to get to the extreme of one to then realize how important alone time is. It, it's actually, funnily enough, and, you know, funnily speaking to, I guess, the subject of your book, I, it's what probably people 
feel after having kids. I think alone time can be something of a commodity that you only realize how valuable it is once it's taken away from you. I do find that so interesting, though, you say that your personality is as as this loner person. That's what feels natural to you. Right. I also strongly identify as an empath and I'm very much a sponge. So I really do soak up the atmosphere of whatever environment I'm in, including other people's feelings, needs, the kind of unspoken undercurrents of dynamics between people. And I, that can be very o- overwhelming. And I can feel like I get very full of other people's stuff very quickly when I don't get enough alone time. And again, maybe that's, maybe that, maybe more people experience that than we acknowledge. I've just always, I've always oriented more towards needing more time on my own just to feel grounded and in myself. But maybe, maybe more people need that alone time than others. And it's very, I've been thinking as well about the difference between alonement and loneliness. Um, and yeah, I'm sure you've spoken about that before on your show. Um, I can't remember. There was a guy I interviewed on my Sober Curious podcast who was talking about this, the difference between being alone and being lonely. And it's funny. I don't, I very rarely, there are very few times in my life when I've ever felt lonely. And I think that speaks to, I don't know, I guess, um, I'm very grateful that the connections that I have with others feel very strong and true to the extent that I don't need to be spending a lot of time in the company of other people to feel supported by and connected to the other people in my life. Mm, yeah. I think I was thinking about what you said from my perspective as, um, as an extrovert. And yet I, I think I feel exactly the same thing that you do when I'm around people a lot. Like, I think it's almost quite scary how if I'm on like a group trip or a trip with my close friends, how I sort of, I feel like every day I become 5% more like them and and 5% less like me. And don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, some of my friends, I'm very happy, happy to make that exchange, but you do, you do sort of come back to yourself and you're like, right, I need to build myself up again and put, pour a bit more of myself back into me somehow um and but then there's the quality of connection thing and I I think it's almost the way you describe it you don't need a lot of that in order to feel fulfilled and in order to ensure against loneliness I almost think that and I suppose part of the purpose of my book which is kind of a love letter to introversion it's it's a plus that people don't speak about you know that's that's a superpower that Mm. not needing to be around other people all the time because that can quite often not necessarily come from a yearning for connection or for, for something particular, but more more a sort of lack of being able to be by oneself, which I think is something a bit different. You know, you can have really close connections in your life and still not be very good at being by yourself. Yeah, right, exactly. And I don't I don't necessarily want to comment on other people's experience of that, but I think one of the reasons I am very content to be on my own and to be alone is that I have a strong connection to myself. And I think that's something that was encouraged in my early childhood, you know? Um, and yeah, it, it could just also come down to some basic personality. Like I've always felt very content and very, I very rarely get bored either. Mm. I can always find a way to entertain myself. Um, I'm very self-contained in that way, you know? And so, whether that is something that I was taught 
my parents, for example, always really encouraged me to read a lot and to draw a lot, which are very self-contained sort of activities and ways of entertaining. But then likewise, I was also drawn to those activities, whereas my brother always had a gang around him, was always playing in a group with other people. And it continues to be our dynamic. We're both in our 40s now. And I still always have my head in a book. (laughs) I'm always writing something. I did actually start drawing again during the pandemic. I started sketching for the first time in decades and found that really enjoyable. And my brother is always having people over for dinner, out with friends, organizing things with his group and feels very, can start to feel very adrift when he's not closely connected to his friend group. So we were raised in the same household as the point I'm making. So I do think possibly it comes down more to just our intrinsic personality than the way we were raised. So what would you say is the relationship between your natural tendency towards introversion and not wanting to have kids? Well, I did manage to find some research while writing my book that showed that extroverts tend to have more children. And if you think about it, once you have a child, you're going to have a lot less alone time. From the moment that, especially for a woman, from the moment that you become pregnant, you're connected to another human. There's another human being's needs um, to take into consideration in addition to your own. And so I think that I knew from a very young age, as early as age five, I think, that I didn't necessarily want to be a mother, expect to be a mother. I didn't have that as an aspiration or something that I wanted to pursue in my life. Um and likewise, from as early as age five, I loved nothing better than reading a book or going off into the woods and making a make-believe <laughs> fairy picnic and drawing sketches, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think it was writing this book that I acknowledged that my really strong need for alone time and to be alone was absolutely something that had factored into my even my decision, but my feelings about becoming a parent, I think I just intrinsically had acknowledged that becoming a parent meant having other people around most of the time, you know? And I think um, this is something that I I hear from lots of mums, you know? The concept of me time sort of goes out of the window, you know, at least while the kids are young. And I think just as, you know, one kind of more negative example of that, like, this is why sort of mum wine culture is so big. And people describe that glass of wine at the end of the day is just the only way I can find an hour that just feels like me time. And I think partly the reason that's so prevalent is because drinking alcohol, and again, this is sort of bringing some of my research from my book, Sober Curious, into it. Drinking alcohol does sort of put us in our own little bubble even though it's a substance that we use to connect with others, it can also have this effect where it's sort of, I'm doing this because it almost creates this sort of bubble around us where we're not Mm. so connected to the world around us. And we do feel a bit more sort of like we're in our zone, our own zone in a way, a slight tangent there. But yeah, I did think it was really interesting when I was able to actually find some research that showed that extroverts or people who identify as extroverts tend to have more children than people who identify as introverts. And yet, and, and this is totally anecdotal. Um, and I've never, I don't, I don't think a study exists to prove it, but from looking around me, it does seem that the introverts in my life, they tend to form more romantic relationships or they tend to form them earlier on. 
or they'll, you know, longer term, um, the dating isn't really as much of a thing. And that obviously involves having another person around as well. What do you, what do you think? That's that? very interesting. Yes. Because I have been with my husband for 24 years at this point. It's our 20th wedding anniversary this year. And actually, I think one of the reasons our marriage works is that I've always been able to have ample alone time, even within our marriage, and for it not to mean there's anything wrong with our connection, that we're not connected. We've always granted that to each other. And I think always recognized that within our marriage, we both have wanted to very much retain our own identities as separate individuals. And I actually think that having a child together would erode that element of our relationship as well, if that makes sense. It's almost like once if we had a child, there would be, you know, a living embodiment of our union and our connectedness that might in some way make it harder for us to retain our individuality within the relationship. Again, that's just sort of a, I don't know, it's just a, a theory, I suppose. Everything I'm saying here is very specific to my, my husband and I. It would, of course, be different for, for everybody and every relationship. But yes, there's something about um, raising a child. And I, you know, I just recently spent a lot of time with my brother and his son, my nephew, who's eight. There's a constant sort of, um, it's not necessarily a neediness, but you are in, a, in the role of, you're there to give guidance. You're there to direct the day. You're there to um, respond to needs. That's very different from being in a relationship with another adult who's sort of responsible for themselves, but you can both be responsible for yourselves. So there's a degree of interconnectedness, I think, that one experiences in a relationship with a child that you don't necessarily experience in a long, even a very long-term romantic relationship, partnership with somebody. Mm. Yeah, I can totally get that distinction there. I've also heard, again, you know, just from interviewing people for my book and, and, and seeing friends becoming parents in recent years, you kind of have to gift alone time to each other. You know, you're gifting child-free time, but that, then that takes away from the relationship. I guess there's like the different spheres of there's either, you know, when you're parenting, when you're child-free or when you're sort of together, but without the child and, the, and the, I guess it's harder to facilitate all Yeah, there things. are a limited number of hours in the day at the end of the day and how many hours do you need of aloneness in order to kind of feel centered and grounded, sane even. Um, I don't know if, if it's always going to be possible within that dynamic to get what you, for me, I don't think it would, I don't necessarily think it would have always been possible for me in that dynamic to have got what I needed. But that said, who knows? Had I had a child, my child would have, might have been a loner like me who really just wanted to spend all their time in their bedroom reading and drawing. And it's funny, like my, my mum has shared with me that actually it was challenging for her that I wanted so much alone time, even as a small child, that I very rarely asked her for advice, for help. Um, I very rarely kind of had needs that needed fulfilling. I was very self-contained and very self-sufficient from an early age. And I think she felt rejected sometimes as a result of me not really needing her or putting many calls on her time, which I think is interesting as well. Yeah, that is interesting. I think um, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's funny to think about things that way around. And I guess there's a certain amount of Russian roulette with 
having children right. because you never know. <laughs> you you can you can have the vision of what you expect that that will that you never know who you're like. going to get. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I can imagine for perfectionists or for people who sort of want to control that image of what having a family will look like because you know we have all sort of societal messages about it. It's actually quite. Uh, it's quite hard to imagine how that dynamic will look and will work. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely acknowledge that my, I definitely have issues around control. Like I'm definitely a control freak. And I actually think that some of my need for aloneness is about wanting to be in control. When I'm alone, I can control my environment. Um, when I'm in dynamic with others, I can't. And so that is definitely something that I relate to. Um, and the uncontrollable nature of having a child, the unpredictable nature of what that might entail is absolutely something, again, I can recognize in myself that made me much more cautious, perhaps, than somebody else might have felt about taking the leap into parenthood. Mm. And so is that dysfunctional? Is that just my personality? Um, when I look back on my, my early childhood, you know, my parents separated when I was one. Um, my dad wasn't around. They were still in a relationship. So he would visit and spend time with us, but it wasn't structured. I didn't really know when he was going to be there. And so there's an instability there, you know, in terms of the, my early experience of family life. Although my mother did a really good job of providing a stable emotional support sort of for me. Um, but yeah, I do, I have reflected and I do sort of question in the book how that dynamic, um, influenced again, my, my need to be in an environment or create an environment where I really do feel in control and to minimize, I suppose, um, the potential for disruption, for, for instability, I suppose. I'm a very, I'm a very comfort seeking, security seeking person by nature. And I do think some of that's probably rooted in my, in my very early childhood. There's a part of your book where you talk about how women who choose or, uh, yeah, no, women who make the choice, the active choice not to have kids, they, they end up being a lot more like their dads or sort of uh, almost yearning for the things that they see in their fathers rather than the things that they see in their mother's lives. Was, was there some aspect of that for you that you were, wanting what you saw how you saw your father having his lifestyle well this was a sort of a just a sort of a speculative musing i suppose on how women born from the early 1970s onwards so generation x women onwards are the first generations of women um and i'm speaking about sort of women in you know western democratic nations the first generations of women who actually had on mass, the same options as men to pursue higher education, to pursue careers, to pursue um, financial stability for ourselves. And so, whereas prior to that period in history, and the 1960s, late 1960s, early 1970s, because this is when we had the advent of readily available, effective birth control, um, ready, freely accessible um, safe and legal abortion, for example, coupled with and as part of the women's liberation movement. Prior to that, a woman's only role model really could be her mother, you know? 
or the other women in her life who very likely were also mothers, you know? Um, perhaps if they were lower income, women of color, they were also performing domestic care work. So these were the sort of options that women had in terms of what I can aspire to in my life. It was only really with the advent of the women's liberation movement that we were able to also look to our fathers as role models for the sorts of lives that we might want, the sorts of activities that we might want to pursue. And I think, um, again, being raised in a household where my dad would sort of come and go, he was free to write books and lecture and travel the world with his students. He was a, a university lecturer. And um, my mum was at home working really hard to put food on the table, um, juggling lots of different jobs, um, sort of hourly wage jobs, um, and often quite stressed out, reveling in her role as mother. She loved being a mother and was a very loving and caring mother, but also just very kind of put upon by the role. And so in a way, it does make sense to me that looking at my father's life, particularly as somebody who who does really value an active life of the mind, you know, I'm an intellectual person, I'm an ideas person. Looking at my father and his life, it makes sense to me that I would aspire more to the life that he was leading than the life that my mother was leading. Um, and I think it's also very interesting that while I never wanted to be a mum, my dad, my brother always really wanted to be a dad. Fatherhood looked more appealing to both of us, actually. And it sort of makes sense. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a way that it did, because fatherhood was far less fraught, far less challenging um, 
was more affluent. My dad always had more money than my mum did. And so, yeah, it was a lot more fun. Fatherhood was a lot more fun. We would do all the fun stuff with my dad. And I think a lot of people, even in families where the parents are still together, can relate to that. Like dad does is who you do the trips to the zoo with and who you do the sports days with. And mum is the one who sort of start doing the majority of the domestic labor, which actually just doesn't look as nearly as fun or as rewarding or as expansive as what dads do. And so, yeah, I make the point in the book that for many women who are born on the tail of or on the heels of the women's liberation movement and sort of going through the, the generations, Gen X, millennials, Gen Zs, having the options to pursue the same, the same kind of lives as our fathers, I think that's one of the factors that's playing into people questioning whether they want to become mothers um, and whether motherhood is for them. Sure. And, and that question goes in multiple directions as well because as in it's not just for people who don't want to have kids or are still on the fence because I, I heard you speaking on Jamila Jamil's podcast and like I think there was quite a lot of discussion around this how the way that we're set up in a sort of socio-economic setting is that increasingly parenthood is becoming very very hard and especially probably a lot of people listening to this have come across the pregnant then screws movement which is just highlighting all the terrible things around sort of maternity pay and the way that mm-hmm. society isn't set up for mothers i mean i know that the government in the uk quite recently they've introduced the childcare provision which i hope will change things and i hope will make parenthood seem more appealing from a you know from a sociological economic perspective but I like how this conversation can actually help everyone, whether they decide to become a parent or not. It does also highlight the fact that there's this huge pressure put on women that they should be mothers without really questioning all the, all the bad things and, and the hindrances that, that stand in the way of that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of societal pressure that sort of is based on our biological makeup, right? Women people who are born with female reproductive organs are expected and pressured to become parents in a way that men and people born with masculine reproductive organs are not. And at the same time, becoming a single mother is going to have a much, a much more dramatic impact on a woman's earning capacity and income levels than it, becoming a, a divorced dad will have on a man's income. And this is because we still very much see mothering and well, first of all, and I think COVID really shone a light on this. We still, there's still a real gender division in terms of the labor of parenting. Like despite so many of the gains of the feminist movement in terms of enacting gender equality, when it comes to parenting, this is still very much seen as women's work. And we almost sort of default back to very, um, what can seem as outdated divisions around the actual labor of child rearing with the majority of child rearing labor falling sort of almost by default to women. Um, whereas, yeah, I think what's, what's sort of needed in terms of conversations around gender equality going forwards is a re-examination of why that is that we're being so slow or that it feels so, um, challenging to really see reproduction and child rearing as equally 50-50 the responsibility of men and women. There was a really fantastic book that came out just a couple of months, a few months before 
women without kids called Ejaculate Responsibly. And it's a very slim volume, (laughs) but it makes a very clear and decisive point, which is that every unwanted pregnancy and therefore every abortion is 50% a man's responsibility. And yet this is seen as a 100% women's issue, something that women are punished and vilified for. And she, yeah, makes the very valid case that we need to really rebalance the scales here. And my point is that even on a wider scale, we need to really start having conversations about the fact that every child brought into the world is the equal responsibility of the man and the woman who brought that child into the world. I think it's generous that you speak about your own experience of abortion in the book. And, you you know, it's a different perspective to how I've heard people write about it before. For you, it wasn't emotional or as impactful as I've seen it written about pretty much everywhere else. I think that for some people that might feel taboo, but I think that good writing is about being able to share every single perspective. And, and thank you for sharing one that wasn't the received wisdom that abortion does have to be life-ruining and regretful and all those things. Yeah, absolutely. I felt it was really important to share that, obviously, in a book about being a woman without kids. Um, I did become accidentally pregnant within a few months of meeting my now husband. I was very young. I'd also just come out of quite an oppressive relationship prior to meeting him. I was actually fitted with an IUD at the time, which is supposedly the most effective form of birth control for women. And so it was a shock and it was absolutely just not the right time in my life or in our relationship for me to, for us, sorry, for us to have a child. And we were thankfully agreed on that. And I was able to make the decision very quickly and being, you know, living in the UK at the time, there were no questions asked. I was fully supported in that choice by the medical profession, professionals who I consulted with. It was painless, quick and I mean, honestly, exactly as it should be for women and for men, because actually me deciding to end that pregnancy had a profound impact on my husband's life. Also profound, you know, and that's not necessarily acknowledged by men. I don't think how much they benefit from women having easy, safe, legal access to abortion, which I think is just something that's so missed from the whole conversation. I mean, when I was finishing up my edits of the manuscript when Roe v. Wade was overturned in the US, and it just sort of felt like, wow, this is a more urgent subject than I'd even already thought that it was. Living in a country like the United States, which prides itself on being one of the most progressive nations in the world, um, where this sort of basic bodily right has been taken from women, taken from men. It's been taken from men as well. I can hear even the even in the process of sort of self-editing that you've had to go through saying that, I can hear you sort of wrenching it back to to this this constant we, you know, we had an abortion, we did this. And I think that's so necessary. And it's so it's so interesting, isn't it? How I I'd never thought about that, how we're wired mm-hmm. to say, maybe sometimes we'll say, oh, we're having a baby, but you won't say we're having an abortion. Uh, right. So as as difficult as it probably is to sort of leap through those linguistic hurdles, language really matters there. And I, I guess how you're phrasing that is really a reminder of that. Yeah, I wonder as well, because the decision to become a mother, if someone does feel for whatever reason that they very much want to do that, there's a decision to do it 
buy one sell, which is becoming again, it's it's more of a modern phenomenon, and it's it's amazing that there is that option. Or there's the decision to become one as part of a couple. I wonder for you, for your decision to not have kids, how much impact did knowing that you were in a relationship that presumably you knew you wanted to be in long term? Do you think that helped? embolden you in deciding or something like that because you knew that or you had that feeling of certainty that no matter what you would be with someone well I mean I was 22 just turning 23 when I met my husband and like I said I felt pregnant probably like two or three months after we met or sort of officially got together I don't think I was really thinking long term at that point I didn't know how our relationship would pan out I did end up proposing to him after we'd been together for a year, because by that point, I felt pretty certain that he was somebody who would be in my life forever, no matter what. And I was overcome with romance and decided to propose to him on the 29th of February. I have definitely wondered, had he felt differently about parenthood, had he really wanted to be a dad? how much that would have impacted my feelings about becoming a parent. And I think it's highly likely that, again, being an empath, I would have soaked up his desire for parenthood and to have a family together and been very heavily influenced to the point of even possibly going ahead and having a child with him if that's something that he wanted. But it's interesting that it came up, the question, so early in our relationship as a result of this pregnancy where we had to have the conversation really early on. And he, and again, I think this is telling the extent to which we think of having children as very much a women's issue, more so than a men's issue. He, even at the age of, I think he was 25 or 26 at the time, said that he'd never even thought about becoming a father before that point. It had never even entered his consciousness as a possibility. (laughs) Whereas obviously by that point, I'd sort of received the deep indoctrination that this was my life purpose, becoming a mother, you know? So I think, again, that was very telling in terms of how girls and boys used to think about parenthood and whether it's something for them. So yeah, we discovered early on that we were very much on the same page, but it's definitely still something that we questioned. As the more people questioned us, the volume on that external questioning got dialed up very strongly after we got married. I was 27, he was 30 at the time. Of course, the next question was, when are you starting a family? When are you going to have kids? How many kids are you going to have? What are their names? Like all of these questions. And as happens when we receive that questioning from others, we do tend to internalize it and sort of ask ourselves those same questions. And so my later 20s, throughout my 30s, even up to kind of age 40, I suppose, I questioned deeply whether not having children was definitely the right path. And there were definitely points where we almost became convinced that we should just take the leap and just go for it. But something in me always brought me back to, it's not for you. This isn't the right path for you. And I'm so grateful that I have that really strong, again, it's like this really strong connection to myself, a very strong sense of myself and who I am, something that is deeply nurtured by the alone time that I'm able to have in my life. And then that I've always been able to trust my intuition quite strongly. Mm. And I think around this subject in particular, which honestly is one of only two decisions that you can't unmake in your life, whether to create a life or whether to end a life. These are honestly the only two irreversible, literal life and death decisions that we make. And so I really do think that the way people are encouraged to just 
just go for it. Nobody ever feels ready. That seems incredibly damaging when thinking about the long-term impact of that decision, not only on the individual's life, but on the life of their partner, their family of origin, their wider network, and the child that they may bring into the world as a result. So I don't think this is a decision to be entered into lightly. And for women who are making that decision to become independent parents and to, to, to go it alone, I'm just so bowled over by the, the bravery of that decision, having been raised in a single, a de facto single parent household and just seen how challenging it is firsthand. I think it's a huge, huge undertaking. And the level of the intensity and the level of desire to be a parent that must be behind that decision is just something, again, it just, it's something that shines a light on the fact that I never felt that desire. And so hats off to anybody who's deciding to go that route and just truly, I hope that people who are solo parenting are able to get the support and the resource that they need to be able to make it as easeful as possible for them. I did meet a woman recently. She's, um, she calls herself the black doula. Her name's Sadia Wade. And she had a book out recently called Birthing Liberation. That's more about reproductive justice. And she let slip in the conversation that she co-parents two children with her friend. She said she'd never had a desire to be a mother herself. She never wanted to have biological children, but she sort of partnered up with a friend who did want that to co-parent the children. And I just thought that was such a beautiful and truly revolutionary example of how women without kids can support mothers and how we can reframe what it means to actually make a family. You know, I think there's going to be a lot more conversations about this as we move forward. And people, because one of the, you know, it's thought that 80% of people who don't have children are childless by circumstance, meaning they didn't necessarily actively choose not to have children, but circumstances have been such that they haven't felt they were able to have children or it just hasn't ever really been the right time. And one of the, well, the biggest reason for people being childless by circumstance is economic. People are concerned about their finances. Um, and the second is not being able to find a suitable co-parent. And I wondered, I do wonder if we took the romantic imperative out of the equation, would people be able to find co-parents within their friendship groups? I think that's a really interesting thing to consider. It is, yeah, because you talk about uh, the role of chosen family in your book, mm. which I think mm-hmm. again is such a important conversation. But I think it's really cool to open up these possibilities, as as you do in your book, of what women without children can then can then go on and do. And then, and, you know, for some, as you say, for some, it's very much about having a sort of creative output. But for others, it might be playing this role as a sort of co-parent more widely. Yeah, there's um, an activist called Rachel Cargill. You might be familiar with her. She became very famous for her anti-racism work. She also has a child-free platform called Rich Auntie Supreme. And in her new memoir, which is coming out in May, so very soon, A Renaissance of Our Own, she has a whole chapter about why she is child-free and how that's part of her, not part of her activism, but, but why it's such an important conversation for her to be helping to pioneer as well by Mm. giving people permission to choose not to have children. And she talks about how in African American communities, there has always been this tradition of the other mother. And so this is other kind of quote unquote spare adults who are just around and on hand to help out and chip in in whatever ways we can. And I think this has probably been the role of women without kids throughout history, actually. I think it's probably always been very necessary for tribes and families and communities to have spare adults 
around who aren't necessarily tied up with the very hands-on day-to-day kind of caregiving of parenting, particularly in children's early years. And I really, really love that concept. I found new ways to think about it as well, researching the book. I'm, as if you might be able to guess, I'm not very good with kids. I'm just not a very, I'm not very good at playing with kids. I'm not very good at talking to kids. I feel a little bit intimidated by children. I don't really know what to do with myself around kids. And so I'd always sort of been like, oh, well, I'm not really going to be much use to any mum because who would want to leave their kid with me kind of thing. But in speaking to some of my mum friends about how they saw my role in their lives, I heard again, time and again that what they valued about our relationship was that spending time with me, they got to forget they were a mum. Mm. They got to connect back with the woman they were before they had their kids and the woman they still are without their kids. So the book as well So is, I've had a lot of mums read it and express gratitude for giving them permission to not be quote unquote, just a mum, to desire and to stay connected to the woman they are without their kids. I like the idea of that being my role. And in fact, I have I have whisked a friend away from her two-year-old twins for a, a long weekend in Ibiza last year. I had a fantastic birthday with another friend, um, just the two of us. And she, yeah, I mean, it's just, I really like having that role in my mum friend's lives. And I, I don't think I realised how valuable that role is, actually, until hearing it from them. That's lovely. It's lovely to get that feedback. And I think, I suppose, whenever one friends are starting to have kids, when you don't know which way that's going to go, the sort of, you know, late 20s, early 30s, cities like London and New York, that can be more sort of mid 30s, later 30s. But that's the fear that a lot of people have. It's just like, okay, well, how will this actually play out in my own life? So the fact that you're, you know, speaking in your early 40s and having had that experience and had that feedback and giving that example that people can point to and say friendships still can thrive, there is still this place that's, that's kind of amazing. Absolutely. And I still feel that fear whenever, I mean, I'm still, you know, friends of mine are still announcing their pregnancies and I still feel every time a dear friend tells me they are pregnant, a strange mix of emotions, like just complete joy for them and also deep sadness at the same time for what this could potentially mean for our friendship, particularly in those very early years when mothers in particular, partly because of the way that caregiving and child rearing is still very feminized are very, very consumed by their young children. And so the, the friends who I have sort of stayed really connected to, I think there, there has been a phase when they've in their early motherhood where we haven't spent as much time and where it has felt less like an abandonment or less like a rupture and more just like, well, our lives are so different now. How could we? possibly kind of stay maintain our connection but it's once their kids hit the kind of like six seven eight years old and they're a bit more independent and a bit less needing of their kind of that kind of intensive mothering that we've been able to sort of come back together and and reconnect the friend with the twins i mean she's one of my dearest dearest friends and our connection has stayed strong throughout which has been really beautiful and in fact i think that's maybe a testament to the fact that i feel less afraid about kind of inserting myself yeah. into my mum friends' lives. And I think maybe before I sort of felt a sense of, oh, they don't need me now. They don't want me around. Like they're going to be doing their own thing. And actually that's that's all on me. That's not necessarily the truth at all. I think if I just continue to be there and continue to 
be reaching out and continue to be WhatsApping them and inviting them to things. And even if they can't come, it's about maintaining the connection, which I do think falls more to women without kids in those early days to be yeah. the kind of like, I'm still here, I'm cheering you, I'm here if you need me. Like, because mums do obviously become very consumed in those early years with just the, the day-to-day of sure. mothering. Sure. And, and that's okay. I guess having, having the humility to sort of almost say that, okay, they are going through something that's more probably quite, you know, has elements of loneliness, but also is incredibly busy and, and scary. And, mm. and it's difficult to be resourceful when you're exhausted. I think that we create our own cage of loneliness sometimes by not knowing what to do or what to say. Yeah. Or how to reach out or even what we need, you know? Yeah. So I think just reminding my mom friends that I'm here, just being present even if it's just a text in their inbox, you know, yeah. I'm here just letting them know, even energetically, just sending them like, I'm doing this to my husband. I'm here beaming to you, my presence in your life. If you don't need me right now, that's fine. I'm not going to take it personally. Just know that I'm here. I know that you'd come to this decision before deciding to write the book, but how much do you feel that almost writing this book and thinking so deeply about these things and the process of questioning that does come through writing how do you, how much do you think it's consolidated and reinforced your own feeling of uh, of rightness in this decision that you've made about not? I would to have say kids? that I have made peace with it because although I always knew that it was the right path for me, I also had a lot of self doubt and lost a lot of shame around not wanting to be a mother, let alone not being a mother, but not wanting to be a mother. A lot of self doubt, a lot of shame. And writing this book and really doing an incredibly deep dive into all of the factors that have influenced that decision and that, honestly, that reproductive orientation in me, I have found complete peace with this path. I know that it's been exactly the right path for me. I've acknowledged deeply my own sadness, I suppose, around the things that I won't have and that I won't experience as a non-mother. And I've processed that and integrated that. I'm just very, very accepting of this path, which is still such a stigmatized and othered path. Yeah. And so that's why I hope any readers will get from, from engaging with the work as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's great that you acknowledge the nuance because I think it would, there would definitely be a, when, when something's so taboo and stigmatized, there'd definitely be the sort of temptation to, come back and say, address everything up in the, in the most rewarding life path. But of course, there isn't right. the most rewarding life path. There's the best one. There's the most rewarding one for you, or at least the sort of, you know, the lesser evil, because we're always giving things up in the decisions Absolutely. that we make. So we're coming to the end of the podcast. We've talked about the difference between loneliness and alonement and everything in between. But what is the time alone that you have that is objectively joyful, fulfilling and and happy for you? The thing that immediately came to mind is swimming in a pool. I've always loved swimming for some reason. And I'm currently living in Miami in Florida where I have access to a pool in the building that I live in. And it's been so pleasurable to just be able to dive into that pool and spend half an hour just with myself, moving through the water. It's so refreshing and cleansing. It feels like it's cleansing on a physical and an emotional level. So that for me is the thing that's coming to mind today. (laughs) Oh, well, glorious and um, very jealous. This discussion felt like a particularly important one. 
about one of the most, if not the most, relevant sociological trends going on right now. I hope it gave you food for thought and indeed empathy, whatever your personal circumstance. A lot of what we discuss on this podcast and what I write about in my Substack newsletter, which you can find at francescaspector.substack.com, is about making personal choices that feel authentic and right for you. Alonement time is a great space to start thinking about those things. Do get in touch if this resonated. My social media handles are in the bio and we can keep the conversation going together. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.